Um, good afternoon. It's four o'clock. So um, even though people are um, still coming on, I'm going to get started. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Pro Program with guest speaker Ambassador Charles Ray. Thanks to Ambassador Ray and to everyone who has joined us online today. I'm Janice Weiner, member of ICFRC's program committee and host for today's program. Before we begin, ICFRC would like to acknowledge and thank its donors and sponsors for their support. This list includes Midwest One Bank, the University of Iowa's International Programs, the University of Iowa Public Policy Center, the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, the, the Iowa Arts Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, the University of Iowa's Honors Program, and all of ICFRC's members. ICFRC also thanks City Channel 4 for its support in live streaming our in-person programs and for providing access to all of ICFRC's programs along with the UI Library Archives. ICFRC has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Ad Hoc Truth and Recon Reconciliation Commission and Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our home community of Iowa City now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. The area of Iowa City was within the homelands of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk. And because history is complex and time goes back beyond memory, we also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forest removal that dispossessed indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. We implore the Iowa City community to commit to understanding and addressing these injustices as we work toward equity, restoration, and reparations. As we get started, I would like to cover a few Zoom etiquette tips. This is the time to make sure you know where your video and audio mute and unmute buttons are located. Please keep your audio and video turned off for the duration of the presentation so you do not interrupt the speaker during his remarks. Following our speaker's presentation, around 4, 4.40 or so, we will have a 15-minute Q&A. You will be able to submit your questions via the chat function. And at that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but please keep your audio muted to avoid, to avoid any background noise. It is now my pleasure to introduce Ambassador Charles Ray, who will speak about race, American diplomacy, and why diversity is so important. Ambassador Ray has over 50 years of experience in international affairs, with 20 years in the US Army and over 30 years in the US Foreign Service. His military experience included assignments in unconventional warfare planning, psychological operations, intelligence, and public affairs. During his Foreign Service career, he managed trouble organizations in Asia and Africa and was instrumental in reestablishing a military-to-military -military relationship with Cambodia after the 9-11 terrorist, terrorist attacks. As Deputy Chief of Mission in Sierra Leone, he managed the military training program and oversaw USAID's humanitarian assistance effort. He was also instrumental in brokering democratic elections in Sierra Leone, which saw a peaceful transfer of power from the military junta that had taken over the country the year before his assignment. This election took place during an externally supported rebel war. He encouraged the government of Cambodia to take a more active role in combating human trafficking and implemented a successful Muslim outreach program in that country, 
which reversed the negative views the small Islamic community had about the United States. He has served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Sierra Leone, was the first post-war Consul General in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, served as Ambassador to Cambodia and Zimbabwe, and was appointed Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for POW Missing Personnel Affairs and Director of the, the, the Defense um, Missing Personnel Office, during which time he oversaw development of the US government interagency policy on personnel recovery, working with the Department of State, FBI, DEA, and USAID to develop a comprehensive plan to provide proactive and reactive support to US government personnel working abroad. Since retiring from government service in 2012, Ambassador Ray has consulted with the Department of Defense, participating in the development of a training continuum for defense attaches in support to chiefs of mission during personnel recovery operations and provided training support to the US Army on interagency matters, preparing army units for deployment abroad in non-combat operations. He also conducts a workshop on professional writing for Wrangell Foreign Affairs Scholars. A prolific writer, he's published more than 60 books of fiction and nonfiction, including works on ethics, leadership, and diplomacy. He works with the Potomac Institute for Public Policy, developing a program on the use of diplomacy as a tool to combat terrorism and violent extremism. He has a bachelor in science in business administration from Benedictine College, an MS in systems management from the University of Southern California, and an MS in national security management from the National War College of the National Defense University. He speaks Thai, Vietnamese, and Mandarin, and is a member of the American Academy of Diplomacy and the Association of Black American Ambassadors. Ambassador Ray is chairman of the board of the Cold War Museum at Vint Hill, Virginia, and chairs the board of advisors of the Institute of Science, Technology, and the Arts, an international boarding school planned for construction in Orlando, Florida. Uh, I would add to this impressive compendium that he also worked on at least two important projects for AFSA, the American Foreign Service Association, which is the professional association and bargaining unit for the Foreign Service, which is where we got to know each other. So please join me in welcoming Ambassador Ray. Over to you, Ambassador. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I will first apologize if the sound gets bad on this. I'm living in rural Maryland now and we are low priority on fast internet. Now we're gonna talk about race and diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy is, is basically the art of getting along in a sensitive, tactful and effective manner and describes how nations deal with each other. And, and as you might find it easy to imagine, a society that discriminates against those groups within itself or within the society might find it difficult dealing uh, with foreign societies. And, and the US is no exception. Uh, our diplomacy, our conduct of diplomacy in our foreign affairs since the beginning of the Republic has often has reflected uh, attitudes toward race and ethnicity uh, in the, of the general society. Uh, as an example, before the Civil War, uh, uh, before the end of the Civil War with the passage of the 13th Amendment, uh, ending slavery and granting citizenship to, to Black Americans, uh, people of color in this country were not considered citizens. In fact, uh, under the Constitution, under a Supreme Court decision, were considered to be uh, three-fifths of, of 
a person even. And this was a complicating factor for the US and its diplomacy, even in those days. Uh, the US in its dealings with European countries after Britain outlawed slavery was complicated by the fact that slavery still existed in, here in the United States. It didn't though, uh, before 1865, stop black Americans from attempting to, to enlist allies in their efforts uh, to redress things and to, to change uh, the attitude uh, in official Washington on how we conducted diplomacy. Because it, got, it was further complicated, uh, this whole issue of race uh, with the independence of Haiti uh, in 1840, uh, a, a, an action, or I'm sorry, 1804, I, I apologize, in 1804, uh, an action that the US did not officially recognize until 1862. Uh, to, to give an idea of the complications of how race, diplomacy, and foreign policy uh, were in this country from the period of Haiti's independence until 1862, when we officially recognized the country and established diplomatic relations. President Adams, President John Adams still worked with the new leader of Haiti, Toussaint Louverture, uh, to develop a democratic government and in fact, outlaw slavery and slavery was outlawed in Haiti before it was in the United States. So you, you, you run that through your mind as you can see a sense of how, how race and diplomacy are really conflicting issues uh, in this country. We did not even send ambassadors abroad until 1893. And it wasn't until 1924 with the passage of the 1924 Foreign Service Act known as the Rogers Act that we even had a career diplomatic service. And that service was strictly segregated. Uh, the first African-American, for example, to, to be posted abroad was during the administration of uh, US Grant when Ebenezer Bassett in 1869 was sent as minister to Haiti. But after we were, after we had a professional foreign service, in 1924, 1925, Clifton Wharton became the first person of color to pass a foreign service exam and enter the foreign service. Now, one would think that that would have been a cause for celebration given the, given the, fact that we were pushing for democracy and, and freedom for people throughout the Western Hemisphere. But the response of the American diplomatic service in the form in the person of Joseph Grew, who was the chair of the Foreign Service Personnel Board at the time, uh, was to use the oral exam to block other Blacks from entering the Foreign Service a a situation that lasted for a full 20 years. Uh, the, ne the next uh, person of color to join the US Foreign Service uh, 
was not admitted until 1945. Uh, and still, even, even with the pressure to admit people and, and a number of, of African-Americans entered the foreign service after 1945, uh, there were still issues of, of discrimination. Uh, blacks were shunted to posts in Africa, uh, small posts, some in Latin America, uh, but not to not to the prestigious posts, and they were not given jobs of consequence within the State Department itself. In fact, uh, in the 1950s, during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Foreign Service used the clearance process uh, to to refuse to grant entry to African Americans. Uh, by 1957, for example, there was still integrated. Uh, still no integrated eating space at the Foreign Service Institute in Rosslyn uh, for African-American uh, Foreign Service officers and staff. And it wasn't until an uh, intense amount of pressure from people like Terrence Todman, who became one of the preeminent people uh, in the Foreign Service, uh, preeminent African-Americans in the Foreign Service, that, that the Foreign Service Institute sectioned off a portion of the FSI dining room for use by African-American personnel. Now, this is not surprising probably. I mean, in the 50s was a time of a lot of racial turmoil here in the US, the civil rights movement, voting rights, uh, and, and efforts to, to get equal treatment for people of color, but it was also a time when countries in Africa were becoming independent and it created issues for the US uh, and its diplomacy uh, with, for example, the independence of Ghana in 1957. Uh, and it wasn't until two years later that we even had a bureau in the Department of State to deal directly with African countries. Prior to eight, 1959, when the Africa Bureau was formed, uh, re foreign relations with African countries were dealt with through their former colonial powers in Europe. Fast forward to, to 1982 when I joined the Foreign Service. Uh, while there was no what I would call overt racism uh, or, or even overt bias, there was uh, I observed during the early years of my career a lot of unconscious bias, uh, stereotyping, um, even slights that, that people of color and women in the Foreign Service had to endure. Just as an example, in 1994, even the, even the uh, American Foreign Service Association senior officials uh, warned uh, the department against pushing for too much diversity because of the potential for backlash on the part of those people who felt that in, in admitting more women and more minorities into positions in the Foreign Service uh, would disadvantage the majority, basically white males who held those positions. Um, and as late as 2020, uh, we were still, just as an example, the uh, Congressional Budget Office did a study uh, in 2020, which show, or 2019, I'm sorry, 
which showed that the uh, statistics on minorities in the Foreign Service and in the State Department were actually worse than they were in the 1980s. Uh, this is an issue uh, that has consumed a lot of people's attention uh, throughout the State Department, uh, across government. I've worked, uh, I've worked with a number of organizations, including the American Academy of Diplomacy and the Association of Black American Ambassadors to encourage the department to take a hard look at what it's doing uh, in terms of diversity, of including uh, previously marginalized people, more women uh, and more people of color, Hispanics, uh, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and African Americans in senior positions, uh, giving them the opportunity to, to, to offer their talents to ensure that American foreign policy provides the best to, to the people of this country. And having served most of my 50 years of government service abroad and in countries where people were not of European stock, I can tell you that having these diverse views adds to uh, the ability of our country to prosper, to ensure our, our security, uh, and to have these harmonious, effective relations with other countries. When you have, when you have a homogenous group approaching a problem, uh, you, get, you get poor results. Uh, bringing different points of view uh, in, up to the table when you're dealing with thorny issues, especially when you're dealing with issues across culture, makes for better diplomacy, makes for better foreign policy, just makes for better results. Uh, one of the issues, for example, that we've pushed for many years is having someone in the Department of State at sufficiently senior level to address these issues. Uh, that this is the current administration has at least started that by appointing to the Department of State a chief diversity officer who reports directly to the Secretary of State. But an issue that is still troubling, uh, and we, we've had some meetings on this recently, is that while this office has been formed and it has been uh, able to hire staff it's not been given a budget to do any work. And it's also been hampered by the legal uh, staff in the Department of State on access to the information that it needs to do its job. Uh, some other issues currently that makes it difficult to think that we are actually making the progress we need to is when you, when you look at the numbers of women and minorities who are in senior positions, uh, who are in ambassadorial positions, uh, it, it is frankly a bit disappointing uh, because you have a paucity of people of color and of women who are in these jobs 
And while the department has focused on recruiting minorities and women, the issue where it's fallen short is on retaining them, on moving them through the system and allowing them to, to be promoted, to have the same opportunities for uh, advancement as, as everyone else. You know, I could go on and, and, and talk for another 20 minutes uh, and tell stories about the things that, that, that I've seen that show that we still have a long way to go uh, in the Department of State and in the U.S. Foreign Service in living up to the language of the Foreign Service Act, for example, that calls for a professional career foreign service that reflects the diversity of this country. Uh, but I think uh, what would be much more interesting, given the uh, diversity of this audience, as I see looking at some of your names, uh, is to see what questions you have uh, and then uh, have a dialogue uh, and, and talk about the importance of diversity uh, in any organization, but especially in today's world, the importance of diversity uh, in U.S. diplomacy. So, Janice, back to you, and you can okay. moderate the questions. Okay, Ambassador, perhaps if you could just tell, uh, say, one or two anecdotes, and then we will move directly into questions. We will still have plenty of time, but I think it would be helpful to give people sort of a little bit of a sense of some of what you actually experienced. Okay, yeah, I, just a, an example. When I, when I joined the Foreign Service in 1982, I, fin I had just finished a 20-year career in the Army, and most of my military time had been spent in Asia. I did two very brief tours in Germany, uh, but I had oh, probably eight or 10 years service uh, in parts of Asia to include Korea, two tours in Vietnam, uh, other than a, a rudimentary German, the only languages I spoke at the time were Asian languages. And so when I joined the Foreign Service, I was looking at uh, a posting in Asia. I had to fight the personnel system to get my first assignment to China. Uh, and uh, the argument I was given was, at the time, we didn't have education for dependents in China, uh, so it would be very hard to get schooling for my, my two children who were in elementary school at the time. Uh, so instead, they wanted to I mean, a bid on a job in Africa. And what little I knew about Africa at the time made me wonder how schooling there could be any better. But, but that's, that's sort of the way that, that worked out. I actually had people say to me that I, they thought I would be uncomfortable being assigned to Asia. Uh, how someone who'd spent more than 10 years of his life in Asia, who already spoke a couple of the languages, who was married to an Asian at the time, uh, would be uncomfortable in Asia, but more comfortable in Africa was a bit beyond me. But, you know, that was just that was just an example. Uh, the, another example, which wasn't really um, foreign service per se, but, but one that figured in uh, discussions a couple of years ago, uh, after the incident of the young FSO in Mexico who was harassed at the border. I remember coming back from uh, 
Cambodia for a chief of mission conference in Hawaii, arriving very early in, at the airport in Honolulu and getting in, getting in the uh, immigration line uh, for, for Americans. And I get up to this uh, immigration officer, uh, a young lady who takes my passport, looks at me, opens the passport, which by the way, had a stamp in the back that said the bearer of this passport is the American ambassador to the kingdom of Cambodia. And she started to basically interrogate me. Uh, this went on for about four or five questions that were becoming increasingly personal. And I asked her why, why the questions? Her answer was, I wanted to make sure you could speak English. Uh, what do you say to something like that? I mean, it, it's, I just said, I hope I passed. And she didn't, she didn't smile and said, yeah, you pass and pitched my passport back to me and didn't even say, welcome back to the US. So, you know, it, it's that kind of almost unconscious, mindless treatment that, that I think a lot of uh, diplomats of color have had to endure. Uh, I, I, I can recount about 30 years of such incidents, but, but you, get, you get the point is that there are, there are things that minorities and women and I mean, I've, I've seen I've seen women in the armed service treated in ways that that men would never put up with. Uh, so, I mean, th those are just two sort of incidents that stick in my mind when people ask, "Have you ever?" I've had that ask, "Have you ever experienced bias uh, as a as a diplomat?" Well, yeah, as an ambassador, I experienced bias coming into a U.S. airport. So, actually, as a deputy assistant secretary of defense, I was once put in secondary uh, in an airport in Miami airport because I guess I had a name that was familiar with a name on their lookout list despite traveling with a uniform military aid and a diplomatic passport. Okay. I think I, I'm still sort of sh shaking my head at the, do you speak English? response. Oh, that's, yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. So um, as some of you are already doing, um, we're as we move into the Q&A portion of the program, please submit your questions via the chat function. You can access that by clicking on the chat box icon, which is located near the bottom, near your audio and video buttons. Um, while we wait for questions to come in, we thank our members who have renewed their annual membership and invite those of you who have not yet renewed uh, or have not yet joined ICFRC to do so at icfrc.org. ICFRC depends on the financial support of its members and friends to, to continue to provide high quality international educational programs at no cost to our community. So we appreciate your membership support. Um, with that, we move into our Q&A session and please free to turn on your video at this time if you'd like, but remain muted. So the, the um, the first question that I see in the chat is, can you point to a nation that has a foreign service reflective of the diversity of that nation's population? That's a, that's a, good, a good question. And uh, I would say probably 
Yeah, I, I actually have a hard time thinking of a country that I, I mean, for example, the UK is, is almost as diverse as we are. I think the Canadians probably come closest in, in, in my experience that I've encountered. Uh, they're probably, there's probably more diversity across uh, the, the, the ethnic groups and gender in the Canadian diplomatic service than almost any other. Uh, the Australians, believe it or not, are, are actually doing a lot in, in, in increasing the diversity in their, their diplomatic service. And, and I think the British are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of us trying, but, but not succeeding very well. Um, but when I look across the board at, at other countries, uh, I, I don't actually, I mean, I, I, I would not, I would not hold up any other country as necessary a model for us to copy. So sort of as a, I would add a question to that, which is where, what programs exist currently in order to help diversify the, the foreign service and have they, um, and were, did we, did the foreign service and the state department move backwards during the previous administration? Okay, to start with, I'll answer your second question first. It, we did move a bit backwards during the last administration, but in all fairness, we were already moving back before, before the election. I mean, before the 2016 election, I think it was 2014 or 2015, there were statistics showing uh, that the department was not even meeting its recruitment goals uh, in terms of, of, of minorities and women. Uh, but what's worse is that that it was the retention figures were, were horrible. I mean, it, it, if you looked at the State Department and if you looked at the Foreign Service, the, the issue was they were hitting very close to their recruitment goals. But as you progress through the ranks, the numbers got smaller and smaller until at the, at the senior levels, both in the civil service and the foreign service, uh, the, the participation or the presence of minorities and of women uh, was abysmal. Uh, and it just, it, it got worse for the career foreign service across the board in the last administration, uh, because frankly, uh, a lot of the senior people without regard to whether they were minorities, women or what, were, were, were marginalized, uh, forced to resign or basically sidelined. Uh, so, you know that that the issue is is we we we've been regressing probably since about I'd, I'd say maybe 2004 2005 it, it would if you just look at the numbers and if you if you look at the progression through the ranks and retention uh, you see you see backsliding I mean if you look at the numbers for recruiting yes we've had we've had some good numbers there but that's just that doesn't tell the whole picture. Now, what programs do we have? We have, there's the Wrangell program and the Pickering programs for the US Foreign Service for the State Department, uh, which while they, while they attempt to recruit uh, women and minorities, they're basic, they're not race-based. In fact, they, they look at a number of demographics that have nothing to do with, with race, uh, for example, uh, recruiting students from from Appalachia, from the Midwest, uh, and from other other uh, areas of the country that haven't been widely represented in the Foreign Service. Uh, there's also the Payne program for USAID, 
these three programs are the primary entry points uh, presently for minorities uh, and women. Uh, and this also includes uh, LBGT people as well to, to enter the foreign service. Um, and oh, by the way, just as a, a point I'd like to point out is that uh, last year and this year, the, the numbers for both the Payne and Pickering programs were increased so that, that you, there are more coming in this year uh, through those programs. Thank you. So the next question is, over the course of your career as a Foreign Service Officer and an ambassador, have you encountered resistance, subtle or not, to your position, especially as ambassador? And were you fully, what, and were you fully accepted by the host country? Actually, I had very little problem being accepted by the host countries. Um, I actually had more problem as an African-American as an ambassador in Zimbabwe than I did in, um, in, in Cambodia. I mean, in Cambodia, I actually had zero problem being accepted, even though I didn't speak much Khmer, but I speak Vietnamese and Thai, and the, the Cambodians actually found that to be quite endearing, I think. Um, uh, in, in, in Zimbabwe, the issue was we didn't have very good relations with the country to start with, and, uh, and the, the, uh, the radicals or hardliners in Mugabe's government looked for anything that they could to stick a finger in, in the US eye. And ha I was called names that I will not repeat uh, on, on, on this, in this presentation uh, by members of, the, of Mugabe's government. Uh, I think probably the most polite thing they called me was war criminal. Uh, and a lot of that was based on, on, on race, I hate to say. Uh, the, where I found not so much overt bias, but, but gentle pushback, if I, if I will, it was, was from Americans and, and here in the U.S. Uh, just two examples. Uh, once when I was uh, the consul in Chiang Mai, Thailand, uh, I was, uh, and I was responsible for supervising the one junior officer we had at the consulate. And a gentleman came into the consulate. I was standing at the visa window and he walked up and he looked me in the eye and he said, uh, can I speak to the American in charge? And when I told him it was me, he literally did a jog, mouth agape, double take uh, and looked as if he didn't believe me. Uh, the other, uh, when I, I was diplomat in residence at the University of Houston for the 2005-2006 school year, and I was invited to speak at the uh, University of Texas campus uh, near the Mexican border, um, I think near McAllen, I, I don't remember the town now, but uh, we have a, we have a uh, diplomatic security field office in Houston, and the, the agent in charge of the field office sent one of his junior agents with me uh, on the trip just so that he, he'd give this kid a chance to uh, to see parts of South Texas that he hadn't been in. We drove down in my car and we, we parked and we walked into the professor's office who was to be my host. 
the 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 young the young um, diplomatic security agent who was white opened the door and held it for me and I walked in and the professor walked over to him to, and stuck out his hand to welcome the ambassador it, you know these type these type incidents it, it's a sort of unconscious stereotyping or or you know acting on on perceptions uh, are are unfortunately all too common uh, it's i mean i've lost track of the number i actually had a gentleman when i was ambassador to um, Cambodia, who was uh, part of the father, adoptive father, and I went to the consular section to to greet all of the families who were getting their children and getting their visas. And after talking to this gentleman for about five minutes, he complimented me on my English. I don't know what it is. It's something about you know if if if, if you're a person of color, you you're not supposed to speak English. Uh, and when I asked him why, he said he didn't realize that Cam Cambodians could speak English that well. So, but so just those are those are those are cocktail party stories, but they're they're true. You couldn't make these things up. Right. So um, I will I'll take the liberty of responding to one of the questions in the chat, which is um, how large is the Foreign Service and the State Department, um, and that there it's there there are approximately thirteen thousand Foreign Service employees, eleven thousand civil service. And abroad in our embassies and consulates, about forty-five thousand locally uh, locally employed staff. Um, and to put it, that in perspective, too, by the way, uh, that total number to include the thirty or forty thousand uh, uh, local employed staff overseas uh, is still less than an army brigade. Um, and with respect to your stories about the the, the young. Um, attache who came with you i mean you're right about the part about women too i can't tell you the number of times i walked into a meeting as the the senior officer the officer in charge and and whoever i was talking to refused to look me in the eye they kept talking to the guy who was with me who worked for yeah. me yeah so, that, happens. that happens that happens unfortunately a lot and and this is a point i think that people don't appreciate is you know you think that as as a woman or as a minority your your issues are when you go overseas and dealing with with foreigners but the fact is that except in some of your your more fundamentalist countries if you're the american diplomatic representative you get special treatment no matter who you are it's here in in the us that you run into the biggest problems um, so there's a the sort of a, continuing on that line. Um, there there's a, a question that how does the inability of the U.S. to reconcile its past and ongoing racist practices and policies most impact its diplomacy on global issues? There's a really little question for you to answer. Well, it's 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 a matter of credibility. I mean. In, in diplomacy, credibility is 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 the coin of the realm. If you lack credibility, then then you can't get people to do the things you want them to do. And so, when we go into to foreign foreign ministries, for example, to to talk to them about how they treat ethnic minorities within their country. And and they come back with well, what about the way your government treats or how minorities are treated in your country? And if you don't have a good response to that, if 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 
then you you don't have any credibility with that audience. And just to, to give you an example, I mean, one of the issues that I've I've run into repeatedly when I when I've had to talk human rights with with foreign governments is I've had I've actually had far, a foreign minister look me in the eye and say, "How can you sit here and criticize me for the way our country treats?" the particular minority we were talking about, when you yourself get treated, your people get treated the way you do in some parts of the US. And if you can't answer that, you know, it, it, it undermines your credibility and there's no way that you're, you're going to be able uh, to convince a government to, to do the things that you want them to do. And, and, that's, and that's the whole issue about having a diverse diplomatic service. We talk about rights of women in, in most of the countries where we have embassies, rights for women, education for women and girls is, is one of our foreign policy points. If that country, if the people of that country, if that government looks at our embassy and they see the only women they see in our embassy are the office management specialists or, or you know, the lower ranking people, our our message is undercut quite a bit. Same thing goes for ethnic minorities. If, if, if we're pushing an issue, but we don't appear to be making at least an effort to, to, to do that same thing in our own country, who's going to want to listen to us? I mean, this is, it's, it's just practical. Um, the uh, the head of the ICFRC notes that we have a number of university students who are interested in pursuing careers in the Foreign Service and international organizations. What advice would you have for them and especially for young people of color? I would say if you are interested, by all means, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I tell these stories and you might think that then I'm, I'm sort of this bitter person and I'm not. I, I think my 30 years in the Foreign Service were probably the most meaningful of, of a pretty long life uh, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. What I say to people who are interested is prepare yourself. Don't expect too much, but don't accept too little. And by all means, go for it, because we need people like these young people, people of color, women, to bring new ways of thinking and to put fresh blood into to how we get things done. Uh, and I, I still think that the, the life of a diplomat, uh, it, it's really not a profession, it's a calling. I mean, it's probably it probably ranks as one of the most meaningful things that you can do because not only are you helping your country, but you're in a position to help people in other countries and in other societies. And you grow as a person, the more, the more variety you have in your life, uh, the more you grow and develop as a person. So my advice would be go for it, prepare yourself, learn, never stop learning, uh, never stop trying. Uh, and, and don't let anyone talk you out of it. So, and how does the U.S. determine which countries it will send officers to? I, I don't understand what you mean, because it, you mean, how so, does it determine? 
Who right. goes so how, to what country? Right. How does it determine who? You know, how does the State Department determine who goes where? Not not the ambassadorial process necessarily, because that's run by the White House. But yeah. But otherwise. Well, it, the assignment system, the way it's supposed to work, is that you you put in your preferences for places to go, and if you have the required language, the required job skills, uh, the required seniority, then you compete. Um, equally for, for all jobs. And so if the system as it's on paper is that everyone with the requisite qualifications uh, has an equal shot at every job that, that they're qualified for. In reality, I, I can't talk about how they do it now because I've been out since 2012, but I've during my 30 years, the reality of it is, um, for most jobs, it works that way, but now and then, just as an example, uh, there are both bureaucratic and I would say unconsciously biased uh, mechanisms that creep in to decide who goes where. Just as an example, uh, there, was, there was in the department, I don't know if it was written, but I know how it worked in practice, a, a restriction on sending ethnic Chinese or, or especially those who were immigrants who became US citizens and joined the Foreign Service to assignments in China. Uh, when I first went to Vietnam in, as a diplomat in 1998, uh, there, were, there were restrictions on sending ethnic Vietnamese Foreign Service officers to serve in either Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City. I think they've lifted those restrictions. Um, there was also uh, in, um, I don't, I, at least through, through about the mid 80s, uh, a tendency to, to offer, suggest, encourage uh, officers of color to bid on Latin America, Europe, uh, and Africa. Uh, and I know when I was in China, for example, from 1983 until about 1987, I think in, in, in with the embassy, Guangzhou, Shanghai, and Shenyang, uh, so an embassy and three consulates. And I think there were five people of color in that entire country on the on the embassy staff i mean it it's that so that's i mean how that's how it worked how it works now i i couldn't tell you but but my guess would be people being people i mean you, you don't you don't change attitudes overnight that there probably still is a little of, of this sort of unconsciously trying to to get people to go certain places i know uh a few of the Hispanic FSOs that I know uh, have have said that you know they've been encouraged to to bid on Latin American posts as opposed to say Asia. So, but anyway, it, it the system is that you put in your preferences at uh, at a point during your tour for your onwards assignment based on your language grade and, and other qualifications and on, on vacancies. 
so to so to respond to sort of a follow-up question yes you can um, request to be posted to a specific country but it has to do with 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 applying for or bidding on specific jobs that are yes. going to be open in those countries and you're competing with everyone else who wants that job and and, and another to to those people who are interested in in in, in becoming diplomats and joining the foreign service uh, the key is if it's if it's a you know london paris rome as a young neophyte diplomat you're going to be competing with everyone else who wants to go to london paris and rome your best bet for getting a good assignment that's that's both professionally developing and and interesting uh, would be to look at the places where fewer people want to go i'm my first tours as a, as a uh, diplomat, I went to Guangzhou, I went to Shenyang, China, which was at the back end of nowhere. I went to uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand, and then I went to Sierra Leone. And, you know, they, they didn't, I didn't have a lot of competition for any of those jobs, but they were some of the best jobs in the foreign service in terms of professional development and of being able to do something interesting. Yeah, I would, I would second that view. Um, the next question is, do many Foreign Service officers transition from the military? And what can you say about the challenges of that transition? I think more, more do now uh, than when I came in. In 1982, when I came in, most of the former military people who came into the Foreign Service came in as specialists, either as diplomatic security, or, or uh, in specialties like budgeting or general services. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I know that when I joined the Foreign Service in 1982, the number of former military people who were generalists in the Foreign Service was less than 100. Uh, probably, probably just double digits, not, not, I mean, you know, 40 or 50. Uh, there wasn't a lot of recruiting effort on military bases, and uh, frankly, I mean, we talk about we talk about race and 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 uh, the diplomacy. I could talk about former professions and diplomacy. One of the biggest issues that I faced during thirty years in the foreign service had nothing to do with my race, but had everything to do with the fact that I had been career military. I, I faced more discrimination from fellow foreign service officers for having been career military than anything else. Um, what form did that take and why well, do you think that I guess was? Well, as an example, as an example um, you know, how pe people say things sometimes that they don't mean to hurt your feelings, but it is. I can remember being in meetings and if something military would come up, all heads would swivel my way and say, you know, give it to Charlie because, you know, he can talk to those military guys. He's one of them. Or, or all the way to comments like having a, a female supervisor, my supervisor in one of my jobs as a junior officer, make a comment that some slang word that someone had asked her uh, uh, was described as, oh, that's something that these male chauvinist military types call, you know, people, and it, it, that, that type of thing. Uh, up until 
probably I would say until my retirement, if a job came up that had any military component in it, if I was anywhere within earshot, I would be suggested for it. I mean, it, it's, you know, the type of sort of stereotyping, if you were in the military, therefore you could, you know, you can deal with the military. I, when I was in Thailand, for example, uh, the, the military did these uh, annual exercises with the Thai army. And I was the embassy consulate liaison to the military every time their planes touched down. Um, so we're, we're sort of, uh, there's, we've run out of questions in the queue. I'd like to ask sort of a closing question, which is a more general question. Um, there is really right now an unprecedented blockade of ambassadorial nominees in the Senate. I mean, I think the Biden administration has confirmed just, uh, they, they just confirmed today, I believe, someone to be Assistant Secretary for European Affairs, which has sat, really sat open for about two and a half years now. But there, there, there are probably um, 70 or 80 ambassadors in the pipeline who have been blocked by one particular senator, and they're having to try and start to break them loose in small chunks. Could you just comment briefly about the effect that has on, on, on our foreign policy and security? Well, when you consider what some of these countries are, where they're, you know, for example, South Korea, we don't have an ambassador for South Korea yet. Uh, it sends a signal to that country that we don't consider them very important. I mean, the fact that a lot of these positions have been, you've had a charge d'affaires instead of a, a confirmed ambassador for a few years now, it makes these countries feel diminished because they, I mean, they, they, they look at it as we, the United States, don't think very highly of them. Uh, and it makes it a lot harder for the, the people in that embassy to get their jobs done. I mean, it, it, uh, in some countries they consider it as an insult. It's basically a slight when, when we take so long to, to, to get ambassadors, uh, in, into the pipeline. And, and I'll have to say, it's bad enough that you, you've got this one senator who's blocking nominations for a reason that has nothing to do with the, the ambassadors who are being blocked, but you also have a very slow pace of names being sent uh, to, uh, to the Senate as well. I mean, so there, there's a lot of blame to go around. Not only is, is the Senate dragging its feet and getting nominations approved, uh, but the administration is not sending as many up as, as, as I personally think they should be sending. I mean, it, 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 uh, it, it's, it's really bad because it does hamper our ability to convince people to work with us. I mean, if they don't think we think highly of them, then why should they, why should they uh, go out of their way for us? It, it's, it's, we, 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 we're, we're, we're digging a hole Oh, we've dug a hole and, and we haven't put the shovel down yet. We just keep making it worse. It's so, uh, that's, a, that's an apt metaphor. Um, so if there are no other questions with that, uh, we will conclude our program. Really a big thank you to you, Ambassador Ray, 
for your presentation today and for sharing your, your expertise and your experience with us. Um, I forgot to bring my mug out with me, but uh, I am honored to virtually present you with the for Iowa City Foreign Relations Council's highly coveted mug for coffee, tea, or yeah. the beverage of your choice. We will coordinate delivery details with you very soon. And thank okay. you so much to our to our um, viewing audience for joining us and for your excellent questions. We are adjourned.